Welcome to A Seat at the Table, a podcast dedicated to highlighting the importance of cultural intelligence in the workplace and brought to you by MFHA, the Multicultural Food Service and Hospitality Alliance. We believe an inclusive business is a profitable business, so join us as we dive into practical advice on how you can communicate effectively with people from different cultural backgrounds. I'm your host, Jerry Fernandez, founder and president of MFHA. Well, welcome to the show, Isaac, and thank you for agreeing to do this interview. You know, as I was preparing for this segment, I spoke with several executives, uh, some DEI experts and an educator from uh, NYU, and I asked them what they wanted to see come out of this period of racial tension, protesting, and various and sundry civil unrest. Two consistent themes uh, uh, I heard, and one was that the time for just talk is past. Individuals and organizations need to take specific, relevant, and measurable action, especially if they want to see or be seen as credible. Anything less is viewed as maybe disingenuous. I'm curious as what you might say in this as we get into the interview. The other thing that came through was that the goal should be for people to understand each other's racial, ethnic, or cultural reality. In other words, understanding the other person's lived experience is really what they're after. Now, Isaac, I've known you for a while. And knowing you as I do, I have, uh, have a number of uh, different um, perspectives on what your life experiences have been. Why don't, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, what it was like in your early years, et cetera. Well, thanks so much for having me on the show today and, and being able to have this conversation with MFHA. I applaud you guys for having all types of conversations about race, the Black experience, and now the LGBTQ experience. So thank you for the opportunity, Jerry. Um, I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma. So one of the things that I learned very early in life is that people like me, there weren't a lot of us around. Um, and specifically that is a cross sectionality of being Latino, having big curly hair, uh, that's wavy also. Um, that was one of the things that actually was picked on in, in elementary and middle school. Um, and so I, I did a lot of things to hide or pass to kind of make sure that those identities weren't a focal point with my friends in school and in the community. So I remember straightening my hair, figuring it out in middle school. I didn't really understand what that was. Um, <laughs> even used hair tonic and got burns on my scalp um, wow. all the way to making sure that I didn't come out um, of, for the fear of how I would be received in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so those are some of the type of things that I experienced growing up. I will say that, you know, came from a middle class family, had opportunity to get an education, play sports. So I was a pretty normal kid, but I was constantly reminded that I wasn't part of the mass. So, so you, you said a couple of things. You said this intersectionality, which, you know, I, I, I want to make sure I understand that. And then you had to hide to Pat. What were you hiding? Yeah. So hiding or, or um, covering as a term of trying to move identities that um, are, are diverse to the background and trying to move those strong identities to the front. So I didn't really want a lot of attention on the fact that I was Hispanic Latino. I wanted to make sure that I, I was doing things to kind of, again, just hide in the back. Um, not coming out and being my authentic self as a gay man was to not, to pass that in the background. Um, so, uh, that is passing or covering, which is uh, terminology by Dr. Yoshino. So you, you said, so you identify as a gay man. Is that how you identify? Yes, sir. 
All right. So sometimes people don't know, you know, how do I, how do I refer to a person who appears to be this or that? So the intersectionality, what is, what is, just give me a, a simple explanation of what that is. Yeah, where two cultures cross. So I have intersectionality as a person of color being Latino Hispanic and then another identity with being gay. Do, do you speak Spanish? Sí, hablo español. Oh my goodness, you know, you know, <laughs> perception. So, so how does your coming out experience? I would assume at some point you had to come out. Uh, whatever that means to certain individuals. Hey, I'm gay. I'm not straight or I'm this or I'm that. How did your coming out experience compare to with other people's coming out experience? And what could the audience learn from, from what you experienced? Yeah. So the interesting, again, going back to that inter intersectionality of um, having a Latino um, Hispanic father, means that he was very machismo. Um, so he's very proud in his boys and, and, religious from the upbringing. So my experience was not received very well. I decided to come out my senior year. Uh, my father uh, kind of beat me up a little bit and I got kicked out of the house. I was homeless for a few weeks and lived with a family for two years, uh, senior year in high school, just trying to figure out how to get on my feet. Unfortunately, that experience is very common uh, with LGBTQ youth. So 30% of homeless youth identify as LGBTQ and there's even stronger disparities, um, specifically with black youth um, and and persons of color within the LGBTQ youth. Do you think um, misunderstanding or hostility towards the LGBTQ uh, sexual orientation is stronger in Hispanic Latino communities than than others? Yeah, I feel like it is. I think that's a cultural. Um, it's a it's a part of a culture in that machismo culture, um, and so the fact of a um, straight uh, Latino father having a gay son is not something that is always received well. How, how did your siblings receive you? Um, so I didn't speak to my family for quite some time and just started a few years ago having uh, baby conversations. Um, and so we've connected, but not um, in, in a traditional way that you would see during Thanksgiving or Christmas. Just, just because of your sexual orientation? That's correct. And is that common for other people in the LGBTQ community? I would say it's pretty common. Um, again, being the youth that are one of the highest homeless youth shows that from a, from a statistical standpoint. Um, but I would say that it's probably getting better because LGBTQ people have been um, a little bit socialized. Um, so we, we're seeing our representation in, on television and movies, um, and those things have changed the viewpoints of who we are as a community. So you work for a company, the Bama companies, that's uh, pretty LGBTQ plus friendly. Um, and they're pretty good on diversity. So, so how did how did that relationship get started? And I know there's an interesting story about you and the owner. So I'm hoping you'd be willing to share some of that. Yeah. So you know, um, Bama authentically is a very inclusive workplace. We are manufacturing, um, and then we also are headquartered in Tulsa. Um, but our CEO is all about uh, making sure that everyone has parity and equal opportunity to access um, education and opportunities within our organization to grow. And so we've only had um, sexual orientation and, and gender identity expression as a protection within our own organization only since 2016. Um, and the reason wasn't because we were trying to discriminate against LGBTQ people. It's just that no one had a conversation of what is it that our community looks for in an organization? And the first thing we always run to is policy. We want to see that policy represented in an organization. 
because we worry about our safety and we work, worry about our employment. Um, and so, you know, marriage equality gave the impression that um, in 2015 that we were recognized um, on a federal level and we simply aren't. So there are still states um, and just recently, I mean, 2020 is when we got equal employment opportunity federally, but until that, a state of Oklahoma does not have that within their state guidelines as a protected class. We're not protected as a state within um, housing. We're not protected or acknowledged within hate crimes. So the things that we really worry about sometimes is our safety. And we look for organizations that um, have that policy. So if an organization is welcoming to somebody who's a member of the LGBTQ uh, community, they, they're going to have policies that say, hey, it's okay for you to be you. Uh, and we're we're going to go to bat for you if, if things happen. What else about the struggles of the LGBTQ uh, plus community should listeners be aware of? Yeah, so I'll, I'll come back to not just safety of a well-being, but psychological safety. So within, a, within an organization, how safe do I feel to actually talk or to share that identity? And so when you think about going back to covering or, or passing an identity, it can be anything from being asked, how was your weekend? I might not feel comfortable telling you that I had a weekend with my partner or that I hung out with, you know, my gay friends. Um, it could be down to not wanting to even have a picture frame of my family because I don't want that to reveal that identity. Um, and then for me, you know, I run the West division of our U.S. business for business development. So there are communities that I know that I'm not physically safe in. I might be very comfortable in LA because they have gay sidewalks, right? And you can see in the community that we're celebrated and we're wanted. But when you go to a state um, like Texas or Oklahoma, where we're, we're not covered from that, we might not feel like, you know, taking a meeting or driving in West Texas or in Kansas. Um, so those are actual things that we think about. And the other thing I would add to, for me specifically, I have this little litmus test of, what I'm, what if I'm wearing today is too gay to distract from the message I'm trying to give in a presentation, right? So am I going to wear my pride scarf to East Texas at a meeting where I haven't met anyone? Possibly not. Am I going to tailor my outfit to make sure it's not so loud? Um, and so those are other things from a, from a covering and passing standpoint. Um, I specifically do and really do think about in the workplace. I, just started wearing my curly, wavy mop on my head <laughs> naturally probably in the last four years because I was just, again, I was trying to make sure that none of my identities were distracting from the message and being able to represent my company well. It, that, that sounds like a lot to carry. <laughs> you got you to gotta do your job. You got to carry all these other, you know, aspects of it. I mean, how does um, a lot, as a, as a man of color, I have some similar experiences, but it seems like that's a whole lot to be uh, managing in the workplace. I mean, how do you do it? Um, you know, I have great um, allies. And again, we have a CEO who uh, embraces it. So I've had those conversations with my boss that I don't feel comfortable, especially on my first visit in some of in some of these towns. And he's always offered to say, hey, I'm there with you if you need me. You just call me and I'll schedule that meeting with you. Um, and so that that allyship, not just from a workplace, but also from from a community, um, seeing ourselves celebrated within things like pride. So Bama uh, has been part of Tulsa Pride for the last three years. And so seeing our representation and having these discussions is what helps build those allyships, uh, which are extremely important for us. 
Uh, how your brand shows up in the community really makes a difference. And what other things could allies, um, if I'm a good ally of my gay or lesbian friends, that what does that look like as a being a pro, a good ally? What does that look like? Yeah. So one of the things that I always talk about allyship is as an ally, you don't get to give yourself that title. You're given that title. So that's very important. Um, but it looks like trying to get to know a community authentically. It's not just about having a gay friend that I can checkbox the, the checkbox. It's more about, do I break bread with someone from that community? Do I really, really know and have these type of conversations with them? And allyship is not just about making sure that I'm not creating a barrier for opportunity. It's I'm going to advocate on behalf and champion and sponsor this person so they can be successful. And so it's, you know, I, I try to be an ally to the trans community, even within our community. And so one of the things I did was I watched the new Netflix series on trans history and how they've been represented. And again, not having that lens, I was fascinated by the history of, of some, you know, we're usually part of this big community, but we still have to get to know each other in those ways too. Yeah, so I, I was going to get to transgender next, um, uh, but seeing how you opened it up, uh, what are the biggest challenges for people in the trans community? You you say you're an ally for them, so you know a little bit about some of the challenges they have. What should people who are neophytes to this uh, don't know a whole lot about? What should they know about the trans community? Yeah, so the, the trans, you know, the the LGBTQ, so the the LGB is uh, sexual orientation, and so the marginalization of those three letters in that acronym is that we've always been defined by whom we have sex with, which is, if you think about that, how yucky does that feel? And we've never really been identified by the person that we want to build a life with, which is why marriage equality was such a huge win for us in 2015. For trans folks, my understanding is that they are usually defined by their body parts. Um, so just sit in that for like three seconds and, and again, how yucky does that feel? And so for trans folks, historically, employment has been something that is hard to acquire. Um, again, going back to those policies of a protected class and uh, for trans people of color um, targeted for even murder. So we've seen lots of trans um, sisters um, murder throughout the year um, and, and not really represented as a person, but by a sexual action. Mm. So how... Uh, during the pandemic, COVID-19, how, how has the LGBTQ plus community been impacted by COVID-19? Yeah, so there's a great little case study that came out from HRC, which is the Human Rights Campaign. Again, if you're looking for a resource, HRC is fantastic. It's a national uh, organization that advocates on behalf of our community, everything from policy all the way to case studies and advocacy within um, companies and organizations. So um, specifically for COVID, gay and trans people are 30% more likely to have lost their jobs since May, 20% more likely to have had hours reduced than their straight colleagues, and a figure that rises to 44% among gay and trans people of color. So we see the same disparity within our even our own community, right? And so also another uh, big one is just access to healthcare. So looking at you know, the things that are needed if you were to get COVID and then the access for our community because a lot don't have full benefits. 
do they have access to those full benefits? And so you'll see those similar disparities within our community that you're seeing with um, Hispanic, Latinos, and, and Blacks within the U.S. Right, right. I've read that somewhere, so that, that makes good sense. Um, so let's, uh, let's move on to uh, misconceptions, the most common misconceptions people have about gays and lesbians or people from the, uh, the LGBTQ. And then you got to do something with the LGBTQIA+, because there's a lot of alphabet letters to that. Um, and, and people can sometimes use that as an excuse for not getting up close and personal and, and understanding what the challenges are. So what are the most common myths or mis- misconceptions people have? Um, I'm great at shopping with my girlfriends <laughs> or, <laughs> or, you know, things that I say that I see a lot is, um, anything that's artistic, we're going to automatically be good at. I can only draw stick figures. I can't really paint or draw very well. Um, uh, that we don't like sports. Um, I play tennis. I love watching college football. Um, a lot of femininity and masculinity. So I see a lot of people that may be more masculine. People usually say, you don't, you don't really act gay. And it's kind of like, okay, what's that? Um, one that's always, that gets me that I just try to smile through, which uh, we're talking about microaggressions here, um, little subtle insults that don't have, that might not necessarily have that intent, but they still have an impact. Um, so we don't really care who you're dating or who you have sex with, but we're here to support you. Again, being defined by sexual action and, and not as a person. But we as a, a collective are just as diverse as any other collective. So we come back from all types of industries. We have all types of interest. Um, the biggest thing is we just want opportunity and access to safety and the same thing that comes with marriage benefits that we were able to get in 2015 to build a life together with someone else. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Multicultural Food Service and Hospitality Alliance is focused on advancing racial, ethnic, and gender diversity by supporting our member companies to create an inclusive workplace. By providing access to diversity and inclusion expertise, insights, education, and connectivity with the restaurant, food service, and lodging industry, your company can gain cultural intelligence and deliver improved business outcomes. When we refer to cultural intelligence, we mean having the knowledge, skills, and abilities necessary to effectively and appropriately engage people from different cultural backgrounds to deliver better business results. MFHA offers live and virtual trainings, consulting, products, events, and a wonderful membership program. We focus primarily on talent solutions, risk mitigation, and strategy development. Learn how your company can gain cultural intelligence by visiting mfha.net or email us at info at mfha.net. Join us. Become a member of the Multicultural Food Service and Hospitality Alliance. We'll support you on your diversity and inclusion journey. That's mfha.net. So I don't necessarily need to know a person's sexual orientation, but sometimes I don't know how to, uh, this happened to me one time. It was somebody who I assume was trans, but I I could not tell from their name. I didn't know. How does a person uh, respond in a situation where I want to be, I want to do the right thing, but I don't know how to ask a person, you know, how you identify. What coaching could you give to those of us who, who, who struggle with that? Yeah, so you can kind of see, I, I don't know if your, your um, audience can see, but under my name, I have pronouns listed. 
um, he, uh, him, and his. They can't see, right? but I can see. Yes, he, yeah, him, and so his. I, right. I try to do that on any inclusion diversity conversation, especially on Zoom now. Yeah. But that allows an audience or a trans person to know that I understand the pronouns, and it's it's a way to let them know that they can identify with their pronouns. If you don't know how someone's gender identity may be, you can say, "Hey, my pro- hey, I'm Jerry. My pronouns are he, him, and his." Um, what's your name and what are your pronouns? And that as an ally to a trans person allows for, for them to know that you're in that psychological safety and that um, you're not specifically being rude or asking, um, but you do have some knowledge in that area. Another thing that I would also say that can be a mistake is making, and this happens with right all identities, uh, making just the gay person that you happen to know the ambassador to educate you which can be very exhausting, um, especially right now with people of color and, and our and our, and our black um, brothers and sisters in our community. So building some rapport first before going into the deep questions. And Jerry, we've had tons of conversations because we have that rapport. Right. Um, and I'm not being um, your teacher. Uh, I'm being a friend that can actually have a conversation about my experience. Yeah, uh, you know, so this, you, you talk about marriage equality and, uh, you know, so you were in the Bible belt down there. You know, there's, uh, there's a whole swath in the South where, where, you know, biblical teaching is, is, uh, how does somebody who, who's trying to be a Christian, how do they juxtapose those two things that I want to support my gay friends, but I'm really trying to, you know, practice my faith? Those two things, are these incongruent? Yeah, I, I would say that conservative religious people can be just as inclusive as uh, a non-religious, non-conservative person. And I can attest to it because I have tons of friends from all backgrounds, but conservative backgrounds, and I have tons of religious friends. I, it reminds me of just, you know, just not so many years ago, just the excuses that were used around religion to talk about and to oppose interracial marriage. And so I know for a fact, because there are churches that are very inclusive, I've been to them, um, that embrace our community and that you can have uh, religious and conservative friends that are just as inclusive. Now, you can still practice your faith and support your LGBTQ friends and family in in work, in the community. Uh, They're not mutually exclusive. Um, What are some of the most egregious forms of discrimination that we need to watch out for things that companies could do a better job with if they just paid attention to it. Yeah. I think, um, that psychological safety, um, not just having the policy, but how do you create an environment, um, within your organization that, that really tells our community that we're, we're safe here. And so I had a friend who literally invited his boss to his wedding on a Friday and was fired on a Monday. He's a very successful lawyer. He hit all of his marks and he was literally fired because of an invitation. And so as of June, we'll see what happens next year. But as of June, we're now protected in our employment. But I think the biggest thing is how do you create that space so that we feel safer to actually talk about our weekend? Um, so the, the question is, is, you know, not only are we protected, but have I created an environment that Isaac is willing to talk to me about his weekend? Because the interpretation might be Isaac's just really not conversational. Um, he's not very warm. Um, and I don't think he likes me, um, which I hope you know that I'm pretty likable. But <laughs> if I don't have the rapport with you, especially as a colleague, 
I'm not going to talk to you about my weekend. I'm going to like pivot to a completely different conversation because I don't have that psychological safety. Yeah. Yeah. So um, maybe you could share another couple of examples. I have a quick one that a friend of mine shared with me that they were on vacation at Disney, the two gay men, he was on vacation at Disney and they saw somebody from the company and he took his head and pushed it underneath the car as they were driving. And I was like, Oh, I was horrified when he told me this, but he said, look, we weren't ready to come out. And that would have just created such an awkward situation. And for the rest of their week at Disney, they were looking over their shoulders. Are there any other examples of things like that that can kind of help us uh, who want to be supportive to, to kind of say, listen, I got to make sure that, that stuff's not going to happen, you know, in a place that I work or in a place that, that, that I'm involved with? Yeah, I think, again, those those cultural communications and experiences internally, you know, are do you have um, what we're having right now, this conversation, does that exist in your organization? during Pride Month. Um, as an ally, it's so important to see allies at Pride. And then we can maybe have that conversation or we can feel like we can come out to you at work. Um, one thing that's very important is don't ever out someone. Um, it's not your not your position to come out of the closet. It's not your closet. Um, so being mindful of that, you know, just because you have a rapport with someone and you can talk to them about their weekend doesn't mean that you need to open that up in a, in a public setting until that's been established. Um, but I, I remember um, last year, pre-COVID, when I was invited to go to the McDonald's Chicago Pride. And so I think there were two suppliers that were invited. And it was so amazing not to just to see the LGBTQ IAT members at Pride, right? We kind of expected that. It was amazing to see how many vice presidents and regional um, vice presidents and the chief inclusion officer was there on the float celebrating and advocating being an ally. Um, and I might have taught someone how to flip a fan, but <laughs> we'll have to talk about that whole thing off, off, offline. Isaac, I want you to say a little bit more about the fact that uh, being LGBTQ is kind of more socialized and therefore it's more accepted than it was in the past. So say, tell me more about what that looks like and what that really means. Yeah, so I kind of call it the Will and Grace effect. So when Will and Grace first got on TV, it wasn't just cable, it was public TV, right? And it wasn't just um, a small scene, it was about a unit of family on how they described their family, an actual representation and getting to know gay people. And so when Will and Grace hit, it started changing social norms throughout the years to come. We actually kind of attribute will and grace to the fact of uh, marriage equality because it was one marriage is one of the aspects of that we can all relate to in that humanization process, right? It's like, oh, it's about marriage and benefits and having kids and that partnership. Um, and so you continue to see the humanization specifically now with trans people. So I don't know if anyone hasn't heard about RuPaul's Drag Race or um, Schitt's Creek, but those for them to get the recognition and award, humanizing not just drag queens, but in, in other shows like Pose, humanizing trans people and their experiences and making them more than just who I want to sleep with or what body parts do I have. Yeah. Humanization, that's really good. TV's done a great job with helping humanization. Um, I want you to say a little bit more about your preparation to go to work. You know, I'm in Texas, I'm here, I've got to dress a certain way. It kind of makes me think about the talk 
that my wife and I had to have with our boys. You know, being being black, you have to have the talk with your boys when they go out on a Friday night or whenever that they get stopped by the police, that something could happen to them. There's a certain way they should behave. Uh, I just took my grandson to the to the court yesterday to to uh, pay a ticket. And we were disputing the ticket, and you, you could pay it less if you went in person. And he had a do-rag on his head, and I said, you got to take that off. You want to send the best message for the judge. So so tell you, say more about how you have to prepare for work. Yeah, I mean, not that I know the black, black experience, but I can definitely rate from as a Latino Hispanic, you know, straight into my hair like I talked before. That was something to, to cover. Um, or overdressing, making sure I look really, really sharp because I want my message to be received well. Um, and that definitely translates as for me for uh, as a gay man. So if I'm traveling to a certain specific part of a community and I know that they don't have hate crimes and that we're not, you know, recognized by their state or their municipality. So I'm going to look it up first. Am I, am I walking into a safe place? And then also what, am I wearing anything, my gay litmus test, am I wearing anything too gay? Just think about that for a second. That might distract from my message. So are my shoes or the color of my socks or can I wear my, you know, pride scarf or do I have too much jewelry on that, you know, this identity is going to distract from representing an organization or taking away the message of what I'm trying to bring, um, which is all business when you think about it. We're all trying to build businesses, right? Um, but I have been in multiple and I have experienced that type of discrimination where I'm completely dismissed. Um, because I walk into the room and one of my identities um, is, is coming too, is showing. too strong to the front. It's like yeah. your slip is showing. We're, women have always had to deal with this, you know, uh, dressing too pretty, showing too much real estate, whatever the case may be. That You definitely understand it. But you really add some real uh, depth and, and color and context to to that. Um, it's one more thing that you said earlier that I want to come back to. Uh, it was the use of pronouns. Now, this use of pronouns, he, his, her, um, um, no, he, him, his. So obviously, I'm not so well schooled on it as I should be. Uh, is a relatively new process. This this hasn't been around for the use of pronouns for ten or fifteen years, but it's the last few years. It's become a big deal. Uh, why is that necessary? Uh, you know, that people announce themselves or who they are. Yeah. So, um, and again, I don't speak for the trans community. Just my understanding of why the pronouns are important. Um, so I always try, if I'm introducing myself, and it's a psychological safety is established, I try to establish my pronouns um, if I know that trans people are there or if I'm not really sure. Um, and that allows trans people to know that, hey, I got your vernacular and I speak your language. So my name is Isaac. My pronouns are he, him, his. What are your pronouns? And so it allows also a person that might not be binary to identify with them, they, theirs. And it validates that I'm humanizing you, I see you, and that I'm acknowledging what pronouns you want to be called by. So I'll even, when I'm in a, uh, at a conference, I'll even put those pronouns at the bottom of my name. So Isaac, Bama, him, his, he. I really like the humanization piece of this because um, you talk about binary, non-binary, which you know, for other people outside the community or even people who are not allies, that whole concept of not being you know, male or female is like, was something that that's a bridge too far for them to go through. Um, but I love the fact that it all comes back to humanizing people. And it's kind of, you communicate by your language that I understand, you know, who you are and how you 
our experience in life. I know we used to, when we first got involved with LGBTQ stuff years ago, we called it the lifestyle group. Just think about that. <laughs> well, that was, I don't know, maybe 10, 15, probably 15 years ago. The lifestyle group, when people would talk about the gay lifestyle, and then we quickly moved into orientation because it's not a lifestyle, right? So, so I think that's how I, I view this, this use of pronouns. Um, now I have one, one more question because uh, our time, uh, is, is coming short. What are, what are the resources? Um, uh, you mentioned HRC, uh, which is hrc.org, which I'm very familiar with. Um, if I want to learn more about how to be supportive of the LGBTQ, uh, is this stuff locally? If I live in the Bible Belt, can I not find this stuff? Do I have to get it on the internet? How, how would somebody go about educating themselves? I, I, you mentioned television shows that, that were important. What other places would you refer people to get good resources to better understand how they can be an, al- an ally for the LGBTQ community? So yeah, just like any other community, we have this amazing thing called the internet. <laughs> and and I use can, that line. I use that line a lot. <laughs> you can learn about Hispanics and Latinos online. It's a thing. Um, you can learn about gay people online. Um, but joking aside, there are there are even great um, there are great national organizations like HRC. If you go on Netflix, they have a whole search for LGBTQ, and you can see tons of documentaries. Oh, really? um, there's tons of TV shows that, you know, currently are having conversations of historically how we have been defined by sex and by parts and not till 2015, where we actually defined by relationship. Um, you know, in Tulsa, we have a great pride uh, center where you can, they have a whole pride library. So these things aren't, and if it can happen in Tulsa, it can happen in a lot of other communities as well. So there's definitely resources from a community level. And then, you know, getting it, it's kind of what um, my good, our good friend James Fripp from Young, um, their chief diversity officer, says is when you can break bread with people, you can really get to know them on the human level. And I think that's what's missing from all these conversations is, you know, we're, we're all kind of blasted with national messaging and assumptions and stereotypes, and things change when we can just break bread. Well, you know, I, 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 I had one more question. You might have just answered, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, what are you hopeful for? What gives you hope? Uh, these types of conversations, Jerry, honestly, it can be exhausting from where we are from a COVID standpoint. You know, it was interesting when, when COVID hit and then the Black Lives Matter hit um, movement, you know, 50 years ago from last year, so 51, uh, Stonewall um, was part of the recognition and celebration of that incident in New York. What's interesting to me and what's not lost on me is that it wasn't the Caucasian gays in New York that were being targeted by the police. It was the people of color in the gay community and specifically trans people of color that were being targeted and Stonewall. So that whole movement comes from our black and brown gay brothers and sisters and trans brothers and sisters. And so when you start talking about all the COVID and everything that we're all, you know, all this collective trauma that we're experiencing together, we as a community need to stop and say, hey, it's time to talk about our Black brothers and sisters right now and to recognize that part of that history that's very important for our community. So these type of conversations, the more we can have them, gives me hope um, for two reasons. We're humanizing um, a community, but when you don't have a seat at the table, we all know what happens. You end up on the menu. So hey. thank you for everything you do. So what a what a great way to end it there. Uh, 
Isaac, as always, you know I love uh, spending time and having conversations with you. Thank you for being my guest on on, on today's uh, today's show, and um, I wish you all the best. I, I know I'll get to see you again soon. Thank you. I hope to see you soon. Thank you so much for the time. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's our show for today. Special thanks to our listeners, and thank you for taking a seat at the table with us today. If you found our show to be valuable, please share with your network and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, as that helps more people find the show. You can also subscribe for free so that you never miss an episode. A Seat at the Table is brought to you by the Multicultural Food Service and Hospitality Alliance and is produced by Dante32. Thank you for being a part of the conversation on our MFHA podcast, A Seat at the Table. Your insights, questions, and ideas are important to us. Let us know what you think about our podcast. And if you have suggestions for topics or guests for future shows, share them with us. We want you to have a seat at the table and join in on the conversation. Contact us at info at mfha.net.